Welcome to Preble Hall. My name is John Sherwood, and I have the deck and con for this episode. Today's Preble Hall is hosting another speaker at the Naval History Symposium, Ben Claremont. Ben is a PhD candidate at St. Andrews University in Scotland, whose research focuses on Soviet amphibious warfare doctrine. Ben, welcome to Preble Hall. Thanks uh, for having me. Um, it's good to be here. Great. Now, Ben, tell me a little bit about your background. I've, I've, I'm not familiar with the St. Andrews program, so tell so us about it. Over at St. Andrews, um, sort of nominally in the Department of International Relations, though it's an interdisciplinary um, uh, institute, uh, we have something called the Institute for the Study of War and Strategy. Um, it is a sort of joint venture between the uh, schools of international relations, history, and philosophy, um, sort of to bring together the various uh, academics across those institutions, uh, or, uh, yeah, um, to study war and strategy in a way that is not simply um, from any of the sort of various disciplinary approaches, and also uh, with a lot of emphasis on bridging across the, the divide between academic, a- academia and practitioners um, to really use the uh, knowledge and um, knowledge and analysis that the, you get in academia to um, assist in um, the actual execution of um, things in the real world as opposed to, you know, it, it, it's pretty hands-on. So more of an applied history program as opposed it's, to a uh, traditional academic program. It is it is still a traditional academic program. The, the main sort of um, taught portion of it is a master's in strategic studies, mm-hmm. um, which you can approach it from a lot of different angles, and that's one of the nice things about it being interdisciplinary. Um, so I know that when I did the master's, um, because for my sins, I've been at St. Andrews for my undergrad, my master's, and now my doctorate. Um, when I did the master's in strategic studies, I definitely approached it as a military history, um, sort of program. Um, but I know people who've approached it more from like security studies or international relations. And I think that it's, um, there's, uh, some benefits to that flexibility. Um, but of course, um, I, I would say that, you know, my heart lies as a historian. Um, and so it is It is always interesting to sort of see the other approaches. Um, what, what was your undergraduate degree in? Modern history. Okay. Um, I wrote my undergraduate thesis about uh, Ogarkov's reforms and uh, looking at how his, him as a person influenced his reform efforts in the Soviet Union. Um, interesting. And your your... PhD will be in strategic studies or history? I think it technically will be in international relations, but um, I have, I, I don't have a ton of background in international relations, so it is, um, I'm teaching this semester, so it's been a learning experience for both me and for the freshmen. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, Your focus is on uh, the Cold War, but I want to dial back a bit to World War II. And you state in your paper, which I read, uh, that Soviet amphibious assaults were small, of battalion to regimental scale, at shallow depths, often under 150 kilometers from friendly foes, 
and rarely had anything larger than destroyers for fire support uh, and were made to insert forces to outflank defenses or insert a forward detachment. So that definitely stands in contrast to what the Marines were doing in the Pacific with forcible entry, with huge amphibious task forces and self-contained logistics. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the World War II experience with the, uh, with the Soviets? Absolutely. Um, I think if there's any takeaways to have about the Soviet naval infantry in World War II for the listener, I would say that it's, um, it was very ad hoc. Uh, the Soviets had no dedicated landing craft during the war, for example. Um, so while in the U.S. we have, you know, every type of landing craft and landing ship you could imagine under the sun and, and the, uh, the LVTs, the, the uh, Amtrak, or were they Amtraks at that point? Uh, I'm, they had Amtraks. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, you know, the Soviets had none of that. So their, their uh, method of getting over the shore was, you know, scrambling down a wooden brow um, off the side of a commandeered fishing boat with a machine gun on top. Um, or literally, in some pictures uh, there's uh, that I've seen, rowing a whaleboat um, up to the beach in the middle of, you know, mortar fire and an amphibious assault. Um, so it really was playing a secondary supporting role to the major, uh, the ground forces in general. Um, and it generally functioned to, um, in the same way that we might think of a uh, parachute landing as a, a vertical envelopment, the Soviet naval infantry tended to be a horizontal envelopment, um, where they were um, inserted with the idea being to seize an objective uh, and then link up with ground forces within 24 to 48 hours, ideally. Um, One thing that struck me is there's a relationship between naval infantry, Soviet naval infantry, which you said eventually grew to about 500,000 yes. in World War II, and the airborne forces. They yes. both wear the same striped shirt. The Talnashka, yeah. The Talnashka. Uh, so what's the relationship there? What is the linkage? So um, the naval infantry and the airborne both are set up to do the sort of specialist missions during the war um, and wind up mostly not doing them. So <laughs> the, there were at the end of World War II about 500,000 Soviet naval infantry. But if you add up the size of every landing that they did, they only landed cumulatively 300,000 troops. And that's including, that's over 114 or so landings. And and that's including, you know, people were landed twice in, in a lot of instances, you know. so. Most of the so or a large proportion of the Soviet naval infantry never conducted an amphibious assault. Uh, they fought as ground troops, uh, especially at Sevastopol, Leningrad, and a few other places. Um, the airborne were much the same way. They had a couple really disastrous airborne assaults um, in the first three years of the war, and by 1943, Stalin said nothing bigger than a regiment, so no more than 2,500, 1,500, 2,500 people you know, in one jump. Um, and they both spent most of the war fighting as essentially elite infantry, um, though it can be debated back and forth, you know, what elite means, um, in a, especially in a context of World War II, where you have, especially for the Soviets, such a huge turnover in your infantry riflemen, um, just due to the brutal attrition they're taking. Um, 
they're both stood down more or less at the end of the war. And when you have um, the re-standing up of the VDV and the Naval Infantry um, in post, uh, post-war, if memory serves, uh, the first head of the VDV was a Naval Infantry officer uh, during the war. And so he introduces the striped undershirt. Um, might have been before the war, but I'm pretty sure it was after. This is this is um, what I get for focusing on the late Cold War. Um, the VDV are the airborne. Yes, forces. sorry, the VDV are the Soviet airborne forces. The Vosdushno uh, de Saint Um The so to to sort of call back on that esprit de corps and the the hand in hand work that they tended to do during the war. Um, they wear these uh, the same sort of style of undershirt. Um, and later in the Cold War, um, some proportion, though the sources um, tend to disagree on what exact ratio, of the naval infantry were jump qualified. Um, often you'll see it referenced as a company per battalion, uh, which is an interesting um, aside because by the 70s, the Soviets really bought into vertical envelopment as an enabler of amphibious landings, and they didn't really have um, a great organic um, aviation capability for amphibious assaults in their Navy, but they did have a fairly large amount of transport aircraft that you could jump out the back of. Interesting. So when, after World War II or the Great Patriotic War, mm-hmm. uh you state that the capability, the amphibious capability, waned yes. quite a bit. Uh, so um, until the early 1960s when yeah. Admiral Sergei, Sergei uh, Gorshkov became Minister of Defense. So what, yeah. what were troop levels uh, during, you know, part, during various parts of the Cold War? Um, so I don't have in my notes with me uh, the exact troop levels, and this is it, it's actually a perennial problem um, in the 50s for the U.S. military um, to figure out how big the Soviet military is or any part of it. Um, there's a great article from the 80s looking back at when Khrushchev um, announced these unilateral cuts to the Soviet military from like 5 million to 3 million uh, personnel. The U.S. intelligence community went, ah, how big is the Soviet military? And so then they started having to run down all of their intelligence they've collected about the size of the Soviet military and try and add it together to get a number to see if they're actually were cutting the size of the forces. Um, And it was just a mess. Um, There just wasn't great information. That said, um, the Soviet naval infantry after World War II the scope was drawn down. It wasn't seen as particularly important. The There was a lot of political resistance throughout the entire history of the Soviet Union to the idea of expeditionary amphibious assaults. So that was seen as very much like an imperialist Western um, tool of, of subverting and invading and, and oppressing, you know, the, the various uh, colonial power, or colonized states, I should say, and peoples which the Soviets, for all that they were constantly ideologically, um, for all that they constantly would, would couch things in ideological terms, a fair amount of them for, you know, actually believed that. So while a lot of the time it seems like boilerplate, these are actually policy statements. So 
when they say, you know, this is a tool of imperialism, they do mean it. And they, it is, it is, there's, there's a balance between the sort of looking at it as the Soviets being these very cynical, pragmatic um, people sort of just papering over the communist ideological language on top of whatever they're doing. And also this actual devout belief in this, uh, this value system. Um, that said, by 1960-62, the Soviet naval infantry appears to just not exist. Um, and it's really then only in about 64-65 that suddenly they're back. Um, so at some point before 1962, they just ceased to exist. Um, the job of amphibious warfare was moved over to the coastal troops, which was part of the army, and the army really didn't care because they were busy reforming themselves for the nuclear battlefield in the late 50s and early 60s. And in 1961, uh, you have Sokolovsky publishing his work, Military Strategy, which states that the primary mode of any future war is nuclear missiles, and everything else is secondary to the job of firing nuclear missiles at the enemy. Um, so the Navy starts reorienting around strategic nuclear delivery, and um, no one really has any interest. Like, what use is putting a battalion, a brigade of troops ashore when everyone is firing around, you know, 50 kiloton nuclear bombs like they're popcorn? Um, when, um, when did they adopt the vertical envelopment uh, strategy, and was that coming from the U.S., which didn't didn't adopt it seriously until the Vietnam War era? So, as I understand it, there was interest in using parachute landing to support uh, amphibious warfare, or amphibious landings in the 60s um, and 70s, but it's really, the the idea of using vertical envelopment really takes hold and and um, becomes much more practical when they get helicopters like uh, HIP, especially HIP-H, um, in the 70s and the 80s, um, because suddenly they have a aircraft that can do about 500 kilometers round trip, I think. Um, certainly, it, it can have, um, if, you, if you reduce your, um, the amount of troops inside it, you can put a 1,000-liter internal fuel tank, which has no drag penalty and extends the range immensely. Um, and the HIP is a fairly large helicopter. Um, so suddenly they have the ability to not only parachute land forces, which they'd been thinking about quite a bit, and, but there was always this apprehensiveness about the survivability of parachute-borne forces, especially on a nuclear battlefield. But even then, in World War II, their experience consistently was that um, airborne forces tended to get slaughtered by armored forces at some point um, because they don't have great mobility, which is part of why the Soviets post-war put so much emphasis on protected mobility for their parachute forces um, with the BMDs and, and that whole family of airborne amphibious uh, infantry fighting vehicles. And, um, and they didn't have enough anti-armor, which is why they tend to have a lot of weird uh, motorized anti-tank guns in the VDV in the 50s. Um, but the helicopter really allows the, the naval infantry to organically do vertical envelopment, except that they don't have a platform for it. 
that was going to be my next question. Yeah. In your paper, you mentioned that they develop L- they developed LSTs, which of course we've seen in the war mm-hmm. in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but that they didn't focus on larger deck amphibs like the no, LHD they didn't. and the LHA. Why? Why is that? Because they're again small operations near the littoral. They they believe yeah. they could use the land. They also tended as their, as their air base. So axiomatically, they were not interested in amphibious assaults outside of friendly air coverage. The if you think about the sort of range that you can project, if you're the Soviets, you don't have a huge tanker fleet and uh, air refueling tanker fleet, and certainly not for. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, air. Tactical aircraft. Uh, it's mainly right. concentrated on their their longer range strategic systems. Um, they they probably three to five hundred kilometers. Three hundred kilometers is is the number usually seen in the documents as to how far how deep they would want to do an amphibious assault um, beyond the forward edge of the battle area. So I'm. Thinking of geography now, um, mm-hmm. so what's 500 kilometers from the Kaliningrad Oblast? Um, I Does don't... Jutland, uh, I mean, Gotland Island? Go- definitely Gotland, probably most of southern Sweden. I can tell you, like, um, from Pechenga, um, which is where one of these brigades was based uh, in, the nor- in the Kola Peninsula, 300 kilometers, 350 kilometers gets you to... Uh, Alta Fjord, and that is one of the more likely of the um, more likely of the uh, operational objectives for the Northern Fleet. Um, it has a ten thousand uh, over ten thousand foot runway and a decent harbor, and it's also um, just down the road from where the Norwegians had one of their um, battalions based up there. So that three hundred kilometers or so gives you air uh, cover over this likely invasion. Now, it's much farther than that to get there by ship because you have to go out and then over the North Cape and then down through the fjord. But in terms of getting air mobility there, it's relatively um, within reach. Um, so they they were able to... And, and then they started in the 80s procuring... Um, I guess be an LPD, um, mm-hmm. the Ivan Rogovs, which carry aviation assets, but they only carry four helicopters each. And those helicopters only carry, um, I want to say, like 16 people, uh, 16 armed troops per helicopter. So you're looking at, that's probably like a platoon that you can land. Um, and, and, the Northern Fleet had one Ivan Rogov, the Pacific had two, I think either the Baltic or the Black Sea had the fourth. And so th- this isn't a huge capability. Now, they do have other aviation ships. They have... Um, isn't that one that was recently hit in Ukraine, one of the Ivan Rogovs? Uh, they were all scrapped in the 2000s. Oh, okay. the, um, the one that was hit by a storm shadow was a Rapucha, which is an LST, sort of equivalent to a Newport class. Um, I think a little smaller. But the... Um, they had a plan to procure um, an LHD, but it was about a sixty percent, um, about sixty percent the size of a Tarawa class, and very similar in concept and design. 
Um, the the uh, designers apparently, as a in joke, called it the Ivan Tarawa. Um, More recently, I guess they wanted to acquire Mistral, Mistral right. class BHPs, which I guess would have given them more muscle for air right. assault. And this is one of the changes you see with the Russians versus the Soviets, is that um, the Russians are much more interested in power projection. Um, so I think uh, if the, the Mistrals come out of a number of things, um, but as if memory serves, and I might be off base here, I believe it comes in part out of their efforts to support the Syrian contingency um, and a desire to be able to intervene in uh, places. The, that was part of the rationale for the Soviets. Uh, the general staff wanted to have expeditionary amphibious warfare capabilities to support things like their intervention in Angola. Um, so out-of-area operations. Right. But the Navy was wildly against it because the 61 Communards shipyard in uh, Mikolaev um, only had one graving dock big enough for either an LHD or a carrier. And the Navy really wanted their 100,000-ton carriers that the Soviets were building in the late 80s. Um, and the Navy was willing to pull a lot of political strings and put a lot of pressure on the designers of these amphibious assault ships um, to make sure that the program was canceled, uh, which it was in 86, um, which is probably before they laid down Ulyanovsk. But they, the, the Soviets, they, the carrier program was really one of the cornerstones of the, the Soviet Navy's concept for the 90s and the 2000s. And they really wanted to push that through because they'd been trying, since Gorshkov had been trying to get proper carriers in Soviet service since the 60s. For the Navy, the Soviet Navy, how was service on one of these LSTs, I'm just going to use the American mm -hmm. term, yeah. um, seen? I, I know at, at the Naval Academy, when, when the, the midshipmen get their ships, many of, many of them apply for, mm -hmm. to be on amphibs. They, it's, it's desirable. But was it, was it a desirable duty or considered sort of second best, third best? I, I don't have a lot of great, um, I don't have a direct answer for that. Um, though it is, it's an interesting question, and I'll have to look into that. Um, but as, as I understand it, the prestigious places to serve in the Soviet Navy were either on submarines uh, or on the big capital ships. Um, they're, the amphibious fleet and the naval infantry in general were not particularly they weren't a high priority. The Navy's priority was solidly on the bastion defense um, that it really came down to, you know, um, service combatants and submarines and to a lesser extent naval aviation, which the Navy never really knew, the Soviet Navy never really knew what to do with because culturally they were much closer to the Soviet Air Force um, and, and they used Air Force ranks even. Um, but... But they, they were, were part of the Navy? They were still part of the Navy. Um, and they they had a huge, like, panoply of assets. They had their own fighter squadrons. That They had their own attack aircraft squadrons. Uh, and, of course, you know, your backfires, your, uh, your maze. Um, but they were, they were under naval control. There's a lot of weird command and control stuff with the Soviets because you have a mix of this very huge emphasis on joint function, uh, on joint war fighting, but where the army is 
obviously and, and clearly the primary service. Um, and within that, then you have a lot of parochialism in the various arms and branches um, between things like the submarine, uh, the submarine community, the service ship community, the naval aviation and, and the naval infantry. Um, and it, again, in the Soviet Union, culturally, the, the sort of elite infantry force that would be a cultural uh, equivalent to the U.S. Marines in the United States, where they have a lot of bravado, they're sort of very visible and, and a large force is the airborne forces, the VDV. The naval infantry had a very fearsome reputation, but they didn't have the same sort of cultural capital that the airborne did. Why not? I think it's it comes down to the um, naval infantry and, and the Soviet Navy in general being somewhat peripheral. Um, the the airborne the Soviet airborne forces were also much larger. They had I think seven divisions. The Soviet Marines had the equivalent of like two and a half divisions, um, and they were centralized. The airborne forces were um, all under the main uh, the high command. They basically were halfway their own branch, much like the U.S. Marines uh, under the Department of Navy, but still a separate branch. Um, and the naval infantry was just part of the navy. It didn't have a. There wasn't like a naval infantry headquarters. It was all per fleet, um, so it it didn't have that same sort of cohesion across the uh, across everything. But again, when they were deployed to Afghanistan, they were really well respected, um, and they fought extensively in Afghanistan. Um, but they never. Um, they didn't have the same sort of notoriety as the airborne in Afghanistan. Um, you can find information about them, but they, they don't have the same sort of profile. I know this is a bit outside your scope, but I'll ask the question anyway. Um, we all witness the ill-fated Russian attempt to seize Hostomol Airport by vertical envelopment in 2022. Um, I guess, you know... Are there any examples of successful helicopter assaults? Um, I mean, from the Soviets, uh, there's a bunch in Afghanistan. Um, I don't have any specific ones off the top of my head um, because uh, there's. It, it was. I, I opened up my my Afghan war book and it was like dozens of, of helicopter assaults. None of them were particularly large, and none of them particularly faced a lot of a lot of opposition. But uh, they actively, they were using air mobility in Afghanistan pretty extensively. Uh, if you broaden it out, of course, you know, you have like uh, Mattis did a pretty impressive uh, airborne or vertical envelopment into Afghanistan in 2001. But um, I think the takeaway from Hostomel um, is that the vertical envelopment part worked. They got troops on the ground functionally. The meetup with the ground forces, they... The, the ground forces were within artillery range within, I think, 12 hours of the start of, of the commencement of operations. Um, so but on the first day, they are like eight miles or 10 miles away from the airport. Um, it's just that they, first of all, there was a, um, a Ukrainian, a, a pretty hefty Ukrainian infantry unit um, that was like the reserve roundout battalion of one of their... Uh, mechanized, I think it was a mechanized brigade, rapid reaction brigade that had just mostly been deployed to the east, but they had um, 
a, uh, an infantry battalion at the airport. Um, and just, it, it was, it, I guess what I'm trying to, to get at here is that it fell apart very quickly, but it was close to working. Um, there's a book coming out um, on the first sort of initial period of the Ukrainian war who I've been talking with one of the authors of. And it's, Did naval infantry s- uh, support that attack or was uh, it just VDV? No, I believe that was just VDV. Um, but the naval infantry did almost do, uh, this is this is my, my um, view, is that the, um, the naval infantry very nearly did uh, probably one or two battalion scale landings uh, in the south along the coast between Mykolaiv and Odessa um, in the uh, in the first couple days of the war but were it was called off when the main force of uh, the main thrust of the ground forces was stopped at Mykolaiv um, because there's five or six major uh, water obstacles between Mykolaiv and Odessa that have like one bridge over them for a hundred kilometers from the coast up north. Um, and it's a very classic uh, within the Soviet and and post-Soviet Russian concept of what to do with naval infantry. It's a classic um, use case for them to inject them kind of behind enemy lines, but not too far behind enemy lines to seize key terrain. Water obstacle crossings are constantly on uh, at the forefront of the Soviet literature, in part because of situations like this, where you have the major um, the major terrain obstacle in most of the Western Soviet Union and, and Poland and Eastern Germany tended to be rivers uh, that tended to run north to south or south to north, and so seizing crossings over them is is a very important within the the mindset of the Soviet military historically, and it it explains what they were going to do with this uh, uh, naval infantry brigade that they'd loaded onto amphibious assault ships um, and was just sort of loitering in the uh, northern part of the Black Sea. It doesn't make sense for, you know, two to three battalions of, four, of troops, even though they're reinforced uh, battalion combined arms teams. Uh, you know, you're not going to subdue a city of a million people with two battalions of naval infantry, no matter how good uh, combatants the naval infantrymen are. Um, But seizing six bridges uh, with no major Ukrainian um, military, no major Ukrainian unit between Mykolaiv and Odessa, two battalions could probably do that. So going back to Hostomol, you don't see it as a failure of Russian slash Soviet vertical envelopment doctrine. It was more of a failure of the link up with the ground forces, a failure of logistics. I think it was more of a failure of execution than of concept. Um, Obviously, this can be argued, um, but they, it was, it, from what I've seen, it seems close enough to working that it could have gone either way. And if you think about the cost benefit, if that uh, airborne or if that, that had happened and then been able to seize the airport and then start air landing heavier forces, because they only land, um, I think, the better part of uh, a regiment of 
or a couple of battalions of light infantry, maybe a battalion. Um, and, but the idea was you seize the airport and then you can start flying in um, the guys in BMDs and everything where suddenly you have your 14 miles from Kiev and you have like a division of VDV in mechanized vehicles there within the first day or two. That's, that's pretty concerning. Um, I think it's telling that it fell apart so quickly, but I think that in part it fell apart so quickly because of the, like, I don't think anyone could reasonably have predicted that the Ukrainian territorial defense forces would, you know, these, these citizen soldiers who were activated very ad hoc and, and just sort of given a gun and said, defend the country would, would have fought with such bravery and such, um, fervor, um, for their, for, I mean, in retrospect, the fact that they're fighting for house and home, uh, against an enemy who said they want to, you know, eradicate Ukraine as a concept, it makes sense. But at the time it didn't seem, it didn't seem within the, the scope of, of reasonable analysis to say, well, a bunch of random people with Kalashnikovs are going to stop, you know, an entire Soviet or an entire Russian, um, you know, mil- military district shoved down a road. Yeah, interesting. Um, I just have a few a few questions left. You mentioned that the Russians are so Soviets. We're going back to the Soviet <laughs> times uh, during World War II, engaged in some amphibious assaults in the Black Sea and the yeah. Sea of Asaf. That, I think that's interesting. Can you tell us a bit more about those assaults? Yeah, so the the Sea of Azov is a really interesting piece of water. Um, I was, before the war, I was working on an article for uh, Simsek uh, about what the amphibious task force the Russians sent through the Mediterranean into the Black Sea was going to do. And I was looking at, at charts for the Sea of Azov, and it's like, it's insanely shallow. I think it's like 20 feet, 30 feet at the deepest um, for this huge waterway. Um, and it is hugely economically important for a lot of southern Ukraine. Um, but it is also this very enclosed sea. Um, in terms of the amphibious assaults during World War II, it has a number of really prominent river mouths in it, which have these, they, they create these big, um, like, Deltas? Del- it's, 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 al- it's like a sandbar where it's yeah. putting silt out, but only on one side. Hmm. So it's sort of J-shaped. And they, as the, as the Soviets were advancing along the Sea of Azov, Getting over these rivers was a major issue. The Germans were very dogged in the western banks of most of these rivers is the, uh, are higher um, than the eastern. And so they conducted a lot of small-scale amphibious assaults to take ports and to, uh, which were economically significant and, and useful for logistical purposes, but also to um, outflank these, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, rivers. Um, and so what's interesting is that a lot of these, uh, a number of these amphibious assaults were commanded by Sergei Gorshkov and, and he was like commanding them from motor torpedo boats. Um, so you have, I, I, 
the impression I get, um, and this was from the recent U.S. Naval Institute Gorshkov book, um, was that the, these were pretty formative on him in terms of his understanding of amphibious assaults. I think he eventually led something like 25% of uh, Soviet amphibious assaults in the war. And so even though he's much more known for his theorizing about nuclear ballistic missile submarines and fleets and being and, and big blue water Navy stuff, he starts out as this sort of brown water sailor, very invested in and, and sort of living and breathing um, amphibious warfare along a coastal axis with the, where the, the ground troops are solidly in charge. Um, so the, it's, it's just, it's quite interesting. There's not a ton, what's frustrating to an extent is there's not a ton on Soviet amphibious warfare during World War II um, written. And there's, there's bits and bobs around, but at least that I've been come across, I haven't seen like a nice, satisfying, meaty, big, you know, rundown of um, Soviet amphibious warfare during the war that goes through its development, you know, the various operational histories, but also sort of more of the background and um, how that potentially, you know, influences them post-war or influences the war. Um, as also the same for, for riverine warfare, um, which the Soviet Navy conducted quite a lot. The Volga is like 10 kilometers wide in some places. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, a lot of work that could be done, um, that it would be nice to see. Did you see any operations or look at at any operations in the Baltic? Uh, I know there were a couple, but I haven't looked into them. Um, I believe there was... Uh, you had mentioned Finland? There was some during the Winter War that went terribly because, like many things in the Winter War, there wasn't enough time to train people properly. No one... There were a lot of coordination issues, and I believe a Finnish coastal battery did a lot of damage. Um, but the... Um, it, it sort of... It winds up being something. It the sources I've I've looked at didn't go into it in great detail. Um, in part, it's most of the Winter War tends to focus on Karelia and the fighting there, which is the bulk of the fighting, and it's great to sink one's teeth into. And this was like one attempt to take, or a couple attempts to take, um, you know, a, a couple islands over in the the Baltic side. Um, that went terribly and at the beginning of the war. Um, but it's the one of the things that, that really uh, struck me about the Soviet naval infantry is that it just is so it, it's just shockingly understudied for a force uh, sorry for a force that that was so consistently extant, I mean, which is it's a, it, that's not a high bar to meet, but it's a, they had you know of fairly large naval infantry force that they consistently were working on how to tailor for the bulk of the Cold War that is so completely alien to our understanding uh, in the U.S. especially of what naval infantry, what amphibious operations, what Marines do. Um, even 
alien on the on the basis of like what the relationship is between the state uh, and the sea. Um, that I think it's just it provides uh, if you have to look back at your fundamental assumptions when you look at the Soviet Marines um, and sort of assess why you why you, the sort of common sense winds up that way um, and it would it would just be it would be nice to see more especially now that we have access to post-Soviet archives to try and unpack and pull away some of the fog on we do have access to them well, the ones in Ukraine that, as far as I know, and I keep checking, haven't been bombed yet. You know, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic was a huge part of the Soviet Union, and they, I don't know what they have in their archives, but my impression that I have gotten is that they have a fairly large volume of um, stuff. The Soviets were constantly writing in both their military historical journals um, and military professional journals um, about almost anything you could imagine, uh, any question of military affairs. They had this huge um, sort of military academic complex. Uh, something like 30% of all postgraduate education in the Soviet Union was through the military or associated with the military. And um, it produced this immense volume of academic research, most of which was unclassified, on military affairs, most of which is untranslated and hasn't been leveraged. Um, and a lot of it, like, you can get um, at various archives. Uh, Finland is one of them. Poland is another. You can get the entire run of their of Morski Sbornik, their naval professional journal, um, going back to the, the 1820s. Um, and that'll cover a lot of the academic debate within the Soviet military um, about how to do amphibious warfare and, and naval questions like that throughout the Cold War. And it, as far as I've seen, it just hasn't been leveraged to that to, to better inform us. Um, it's, it's also, even though there is, even though largely the Russian central military archives aren't open to, certainly not to Americans these days, um, there's information that's come out... Um, information that has come out uh, in the period where they were open, as well as um, the historical works that were written during the Cold War, um, and not just sort of uh, academic historical, but also um, historical works written by the Soviet military for the purposes of operational analysis, which often, they can tend to play a little fast and loose because they're, they're teaching aids, so they're trying to make a point. Um, sometimes, sometimes if they're like general staff studies, they're, um, very, uh, they tend to be very dry and, uh, heavy on the, the operational detail, which is good, um, for analysis. There's, the information is out there, I guess, is, is the point I'm trying to say, or at least more information certainly than we had in the eighties. Um, but there doesn't seem at least to me to be mu as much of a, well, there wasn't a ton in the 80s either, but there doesn't seem to be a big push to leverage um, this in the same way that you see for stuff about World War II, where there was a ton of information that came out of the archives uh, from the, the post-Soviet sort of 15 years 
um, about World War II that was really usefully um, leveraged to broaden our understanding of the Soviet involvement in World War II and, and still provides fertile ground for study. Um, but Interestingly enough, this is not your dissertation topic. You're, you're no. working on another project. Can you just, yes. uh, in a nutshell, tell us what that's about? So, uh, and when you hope to graduate. Yes. So uh, hopefully December 25. And uh, the, the sort of elevator pitch for my dissertation topic is um, looking at the history of U.S. Army threat analysis and threat doctrine production on the Soviet military, um, what we can learn from that about the threat doctrine development process, uh, trying to establish a method to assess the methodological robustness of uh, threat doctrine production in lieu of being able to cross-check it against uh, potentially the information directly from the adversary, um, and drawing out a historical sketch of the understanding that the U.S. Army had of the Soviet military throughout the Cold War and how that evolved. Um, so hopefully that makes some sense. It does. I want to thank you. This is Preble Hall.